you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. Well, I'm Rob Hutchinson. We're chatting today about freedoms and certain laws and introductions that seem to drive uh, politically driven ideology within our lawmaking to keep the majority of society uh, happy and keep a uh, certain political parties in in power however how does that affect minorities and should should we be be concerned so we joined with Hamon Pretorius from the Freedom Advocacy Network uh, good afternoon Hamon how are you Good afternoon, Rob. No, I, uh, I'm well. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a youth day. Um, I, I, I don't know if I qualify as youth anymore, uh, but uh, I'm going to try and make it apply to myself, but I'm also very much glad to be here with you today. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I definitely do not count as youth, although uh, <laughs> what is the limit these days? I think it is an ANC youth. You could look at what, 35, anything below 35 is, is youth, which <laughs> yes, is quite I, a I must broad say, definition. The, the, the ANC has this odd situation where their MK vets seem to be younger than their ANC youth league leaders. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yes. Oh, it just does seem to be subjective, doesn't it? <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> Hammond, welcome, welcome to the show. And I'm really, really glad to have you here. And, um, you've recently created a, a rather interesting group. I've been browsing through your website there, the Freedom Advocacy Network. Um, you claim to be able to uh, empower individuals to become problem solvers in their own lives and communities and build relationships of trust between citizens from all backgrounds to confront problems together and connect freedom <laughs> loving people to fight for an accountable, honest, effective, and limited government. That's a bold statement. It is, it is wonderful to see something like that. Hey, what brought this about? You, you talked about earlier in your introduction, uh, which was so brilliant, I'm, I'm, I'm scared I might not add anything of substance after that, but um, <laughs> that the market demands some things, and then if there is a demand, um, there's a, you know, there, there's a step up to, to satisfy that demand. And over the last year or so, I've really become convinced that, um, you know, the next decade will be the turning point decade, uh, in, or, or at least the determinative decade. Are we going to turn the ship around, get it to a good place, or are we really going to commit fully to something resembling irrevocable failed state status? And I, I've been delving into the data back to 2014, where when Gallup did a very, very interesting poll that I saw uh, almost a year ago now. And um, the, the, the interesting thing about the poll was it was a worldwide uh, um, survey of the popularity um, or the support amongst populations of a free market system. And in South Africa... Um, almost 70%, 68% of South Africans said, um, answered positively in the question, uh, on, on, the, on, on the question, um, do you think a free market is the best way for socioeconomic progress to be affected, even though it will make some people richer and, uh, than others and create social inequality? And 68% of South Africans agreed with this statement. Now that started to to trigger some thinking on my side. I delved into the data of the Institute for Race Relations 
And I found similar attitudes at similar percentages. For example, um, 70% in the Institute's uh, most recent polling from last year, 70% of South Africans say that different races need each other to make uh, South Africa a success. And then I looked at the election data. And the fascinating, the most fascinating factoid, I think, in the South African political discourse is the fact that in 1994, when the ANC won 63% of the vote, it was representative of about 54% of all eligible voters. So um, the ANC won a proper majority in, in 1994, um, getting the support of the majority of the adult population. But fast forward to 2019, and the 57% that Cyril Ramaphosa's ANC got at the ballot box is actually representative of less than 30% of the adult population support. We've got about 35 million South Africans who can vote, 27 million of them registered to vote, but only about 17 million pitch to vote, and of that 17 million, just over 10 million voted for the ANC. So there's this massive chunk millions and millions of South Africans, at least 18 million, who, according to the best data available, must be reasonable, free marketers, uh, non-racial, small C conservative, wanting to preserve the family structure, um, a safe society. Yet these people have become, uh, you know, gradually disenchanted with the political process. And FAN, the Freedom Advocacy Network, is aimed at trying to start reaching those people and reversing that process of disenchantment. Oh, brilliant. So it's it's not uh, you don't have any political aspirations or ideology attached to you, which is which is wonderful to see. It's simply igniting uh, what we call the silent majority, those who sit in 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 that in the middle there. And that mm-hmm. uh, I absolutely agree with you. That is exactly. What is needed in this country is for those that silent majority to actually uh, stop being silent. The problem, the problem that you face is that as soon as the someone who's um, in the moderate middle uh, says anything, anything, they immediately labelled as an extremist and they shift to either the left or the, or, or the right. So there, there's going to be a great balancing act that, that has to be played between that to make make it clear. That those who are actually saying something aren't the radicals. We are mm. the once previous silent uh, majority. And I just said we there because uh, yes. I put myself in, in that middle there and, and I'm sure you do too. It's, it's, it's a major problem that, that we face going forward because I, I do believe political parties, um, especially the ones that, or especially the ANC currently in power, love to play on the fringes, not maybe mm. directly, but indirectly through 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 other players, and they have to because it is, after all, what what drives those those votes. So, the, the, I mean, lately we've seen um, several several laws that do uh, in, in, infringe on basic human rights, mm-hmm. and those laws are clearly put out to to appease what I originally thought in the introduction here was the masses, but which you point out. By statistical analysis is definitely not the, the masses. It's just those fringes of society, but they are the yeah. voters. Yeah. So those laws are rather concerning and, um, geez, yeah, I, I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> what laws do you, do you see as, as a problem? Well, um, 
I think um, the one thing that the ANC has done really, really well, um, but that's starting to change. I really think mm. it's starting to change is for a long time it simply could say we speak for the majority of South Africans. We speak for black South Africans. We speak for people, um, you know, opposed to racism. And, and you know, under Mbeki and Mandela, they could perhaps with some merit claim that mantle. Mm-hmm. But over the last decade and a half, that, that, that mantle has been, I mean, the, 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 the emperor has no clothes. Um, and what's really encouraging to me is that we are seeing these little sprouts of opposition voices um, uh, the Freedom Advocacy Network fan being one of them, just saying, um, you know, your claim to speak for the majority is actually not uh, valid and we're not going to accept it. Um, and I think one of the most prominent examples, uh, dating back even to the Mbeki years, mm-hmm. of this misguided claim, uh, perhaps a dishonest claim of speaking for the majority, is BEE, originally meant to, you know, stand for Black Economic Empowerment, Svan is trying to push this narrative that BEE actually stands for blatant elite enrichment because <laughs> if it was about empowering black South Africans, why has unemployment for black South Africans gotten worse since the implementation of BEE? Why do we see um, the overall unemployment situation being worse? Um, and, mm. and that's if we exclude um, the, the, you know, the, the tumultuous time of of, of the COVID lockdowns, and we just look at the first quarter of 2020 and, you know, take that as an, uh, an honest data point. It's all gotten worse, and yet we've got a massive number of ANC millionaires mm-hmm. who have just excluded uh, the vast majority of black South Africans out of the jobs market through their crony capitalism, which isn't a true form of free market capitalism. And also the problem is the data shows on opinion polling, at least 80% of black South Africans say they cannot say they have personally benefited from BEE. So BEE is a great place to start to attack this idea of being for the majority when the data clearly shows it is for a very uh, elite, politically connected bunch of cronies that had the National Party die in their arms in 2005 and now have learned from the best of the National Party's uh, you know, uh, racial exclusivity how to drive an economy for only the cream at the top. Absolutely correct. And I think I, I have to mention the recent statement by President Ramaphosa where he was referring to the rollout of the vaccines or something related to, to that. And he said that there will be uh, at least two new black billionaires from, from, from this. Now, I had to sit back and think that is absolutely insane. Do you realize how much a billion is? Why couldn't there yes. be a hundred thousand people who are now much more wealthy than they were before, or a million people who are now much more wealthy than they were, they were before. Why does it have to be two, two black billionaires? Makes no sense to me at all. Exactly. And, but I, I, I always say that the, the true cadres of the ANC's revolutionary movement, they are so devoted to cause that they endure the evils of wealth and capitalism so that the poor don't have to. <laughs> Indeed, yes. You know, we'll bear it on our shoulders and, and, and carry the bags of money. So that you yes, don't we'll have... be rich 
on your behalf. And that's the, that's the nonsense of this race-based thinking that Fan is really going to kick against and dear South Africa is kicking against the IRR. These entities that just say, no, you can't be rich on behalf of someone else, nor can you be guilty on behalf of someone else. Let's treat people as people, make it better, and then ask the question, BEE, is that achieving an improved standard of life for uh, black people in South Africa? And sadly, the answer is no. I think it was Milton Friedman who said, the biggest mistake you can possibly make in politics is to judge a policy by its stated intention and not its achieved result. Oh, absolutely. And I think we being intimately involved in, in policy, as, as you and I are, we can definitely, definitely see that policy has great intentions, but in reality, it, it hardly ever meets uh, the needs of the people, which is why public participation in policy is extremely important because politicians sit in their ivory tower, come up with these wonderful ideas, but they are so out of touch with uh, the common folk. And yeah, we are the common folk. And <laughs> how can they possibly form or policies that betters our lives when they have no clue of how we live. So there's, yeah. there's many things around that. And there's also many laws that they seem to have introduced lately, which are, you know, BE is one of them. And then no, no doubt, uh, the biggest failure. And I think everyone can agree to that. Um, it is definitely the biggest failure because you cost so correct and there would be a reduction in in unemployment, that is the absolute measure of the success of a policy, and so that is a failure. But there are other laws which are major concern. We have major concerns that erode our freedoms. Uh, the Peputa Bill, yes. the amendments to that. Now, that came about about three months ago. We saw that we put it out there. And I glanced over it, I had a look at it, and I didn't think it was too bad. Had some issues in it. The major concern was the intent to discriminate, which I thought was a bit yes. ridiculous because how do you, how do you actually uh, define that in realistic terms or in a court? And then mm-hmm. lately, uh, there seems to be a lot of, it seems to have resurrected itself and there seems to be an attack on freedom of religion or freedom of speech or expression within a religious place. Um, how, do you, how do you feel this uh, affects society and human rights? I think, I think it is disastrous. And it's again, or it will be disastrous if it goes through. And, you know, um, I, I really urge people to, to use platforms like, like DRSA, the IRR fan, to, to mm. oppose this legislation because the... Uh, People abusing power are always so good at, uh, at at stating good intentions. And because people live busy lives, I mean, you've got your job, your mortgage, your kids, your grandkids, uh, all these things to, to worry about. You can't always take the time um, to delve into these things beyond the intentions. And why? that's why civic watchdog organizations are so important and, and really, really deserve the support of the public um, because – Intentions aren't good enough, but these intentions are so thin but shiny that if people say, or if, if the government comes to an ordinary South African saying, you know, we've got a bill, the promotion uh, of, of, of uh, equality um, and the Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act, we want to strengthen it, the instinct of the individual is to say, 
Uh, yes, yes, no, let's, let's end this nonsense of unfair discrimination. It's unnecessary, it's divisive, it's a remnant from our darkest days of history, and also let's make equality achievable for everyone. Good intentions, but exactly as you say, Rob, if you look at the actual substance, you no longer is the focus, if, if these new amendments come through, no longer is the focus on not discriminating but there is now a new constitutional, if this thing passed essentially, obligation to promote equality by private industries, churches, mm-hmm. even individuals. No longer do you have a defensive law to say this is a line in the sand or this is a wall we are building around someone's freedom. You are now reaching the point of social engineering where the government is trying to not stop bad behavior, but encourage the sort of behavior it deems appropriate. That is fundamentally offensive to this notion of freedom. It's not up to the government to decide what appropriate behavior on an individual basis is. It's up to the government to legislate what inappropriate behavior is, but that's a different question. So the first real flag, uh, red flag waving over this new Papuda nonsense is the fact that there is this obligation to promote equality and no longer is it about discouraging or stopping unfair discrimination. And then you've got very strident terms like eliminate discrimination that is related to 18 listed grounds and an indefinite number of quote-unquote comparable grounds, even if that discrimination is uh, not intentional or unfair, nor that the dominant reason for the conduct of the individual, the church, the entity in question. So it is just this whole package of toxicity eroding people's freedom and fundamentally your right to fair labor practices. When we walk into a store and there's a little sign above the door saying right um, of admission reserved, We either mean it or we don't. And in this case, the government is absolutely just taking uh, like a child with a crayon and a newly painted wall, just scratching over that idea that you have this labor freedom of managing your business as you see fit. Freedom of association, gone. Now you have to associate with the people. Government is, uh, you know, determining you to associate. It, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm getting worked up here and I think I should stop because I might, you know, just <laughs> burst something. But we can go on and on about the toxicity of this law based on this fundamental exclusive racism that the ANC, sh- I, I think, managed to shed for, you know, between, let's say, 1994 um, and 2003, but since the mid-2000, there's been this creeping reinsertion of a toxic racism into our policy. And the Papuda amendments currently at play, I think, are the m- clearest, most toxic manifestation of that. I absolutely agree with you. And, and you touched on a very valid point there. It's no longer about uh, setting boundaries of the law. It's now about pushing people towards a, a certain ideology and social social behavior. We're going to take a quick quick break, and uh, we'll continue this uh, fantastic conversation conversation when we when we return. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. 
Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm chatting today with Hammond Pretorius from FAN, a fantastic um, non-profit organization which is hoping to change society in a positive positive way. So, Hammond, we were chatting about Pepcuda, which is <laughs> got you quite worked up there, didn't it? <laughs> I've taken a moment to relax. I've had a sip of water. I'm now my amicable self again. <laughs> Amicable, right. Anyway, <laughs> not from what I've heard, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Pepuda is a rather concerning, uh, concerning piece of legislation which, um, it flew under the radar for quite a while and didn't get the attention it needed, but luckily it has been open, uh, once again for public comments until the 30th of this month. So there's a few days left for the public to have their say and influence this, uh, what we see as a disastrous bill before it becomes, uh, written into, into the, into law. Um, but there's also, it's not the only one, as, as we know. There are, there are many others, Herman. And I'm sure if we had, uh, about six hours, we could get through about 10% of what was going on. But what in your in your mind? I mean, there's this EWC, there's the NHI, and there's a whole lot of others. <clears throat> but what is the most perplexing and concerning, do you think, in your opinion? Well, um, b- before I answer that question, I quickly want to make a, a brief point. People often ask me, yeah, well, what's the point of sending in a submission? I mean, they'll just ignore it in any way. And, and I always say to people, you know, we can't promise you. We people, you know, who've tried to mobilize opposition to terrible policies and, you know, support for good policies, we can't promise you that our efforts will be successful if you help us. But we can promise you our efforts will fail if you don't. So mm. it's, it's, it's the sort of, Descartian wager almost that, you know, it's, we, we can't promise you success, but under certain circumstances, we can promise you failure. And, and I remember fondly Rob last November. Um, I think it was last November. It was sometime at some point in last year when, um, a, a, a colleague of mine at the Institute of Race Relations then, um, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey flagged the danger of the electoral laws amendment bill yes. as it was then mm. and we mobilized we got in contact with you and between uh, DRSA the IRR and a few other NGOs uh, in, in the limited time available we pummeled the poor committee uh, with opposition to mm. these uh, this, this dangerous notion of electronic voting that really risks uh, manipulation because it just doesn't have the oversight mechanisms built into it that we feel or felt is uh, effective. And we, we, we had a success there. Together, mm. dare I say, the IRR and the, the, I think about 13,000 people who, who responded to the call to in, get involved, that bad piece of legislation, that uh, article in the proposed um, uh, bill was was scrapped. Um, the committee listened to us. They got the uh, the IEC to make representations, and we got that change. So it's not always the flashiest thing to happen is to get um, this article, that article, this clause, or that clause scrapped from a potentially damaging bill. But it does happen, and it does make a difference. Yeah, so I, I, I think that's something worth 
pointing out because we are we we often get so bogged down in cynicism that we that that actually starts to count in the favor of those people who want to take our freedoms away mm. but on the question of uh, of of uh, another really problematic policy um, or law, and and I think it's uh, we we can discuss this one briefly, but I think it's apt because it is Youth Day, and youth unemployment has just skyrocketed to, as you said, seventy five percent. Three out of every four South Africans between the ages of fifteen and twenty four are without jobs. That's not just a problem because young people aren't earning an income; it's a problem because the next generation of middle aged people aren't building a skills base. It's yes. not just that we've got a poor um, youth, it's that we've got a youth not getting the opportunity to upskill through work. And one of the greatest contributors to that is the poison of the minimum wage. That has been strengthened last year, and surprise, surprise, a few months later, the unemployment stats got even worse. Now, I'm not saying people need to be exploited, but I am saying that if young people want to stand a realistic chance of getting those entry-level jobs with, let's be honest, those entry-level salaries, then we have to make it possible for them to say, thank you, Mr. President, thank you, government, for having given me this idea that I can demand a minimum wage, but you know what? I'd rather earn a bit under the minimum wage than nothing, so I'm going to opt out of this scheme of yours. I think that could make such a massive change because the minimum wage, again, Fine intention, awful results. I agree. I, I think the minimum wage, minimum wage equals minimum employees and oh, minimum, minimum employment yes. opportunities. That's the simple that's so well mathematics put. of it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's how it works. Companies have a budget. This is what we can we spend on our staff, and we divide that amongst the number of, of possible employees that we can have. If the government determines that 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 number then we obviously have to scale down our operations, and that affects the economy in whole if everyone else is, is, is doing it. So that you're right. The, the obvious solution there is to take away the minimum wage, allow companies to employ people who want to be employed and just to earn whatever they want to earn, and then build up the economy, create the momentum that, that's, that's required within and then allow those companies to then increase the salaries and then reduce unemployment, and then you can create a minimum wage once, once you've got it down there. Yeah. Precisely, and I, and I think on on this, this this youth point that really is, is troubling because it's all these young people are already being failed by by the education system, where um, out of every hundred grade ones. Fewer than five of them mm. will 12 years later walk out of matric with more than 50% in mathematics. Um, so the education system in terms of numeracy and literacy, just yeah. not equipping people. So one of the, the, the final uh, opportunities they have to, you know, get off this highway towards chronic poverty mm. is entry level unemployment. And if you're an employer, an employer, a businessman, and you can either hire someone slightly older, in the you know uh, middle thirties or something, um, or a young person, um, and they will cost you exactly the same because you can't make that saving of taking that risk on a on a younger person, mm-hmm. paying them cheaper but possibly investing in a great asset. It's just the safer choice to go. Well, 
this person has 10 years more experience than that one. They'll cost me exactly the same. I'm going to hire the older employee. Um, that just means that young people, it, it, instead of a policy boosting people up the employment ladder, it just cut down the few, the three or four bottom rungs of that ladder. Um, added to that BEE, added to that computer, and you just see this terrible picture emerging of businesses really not being given the leeway to maneuver. And then we come to the disastrous expropriation of our compensation, oh, yeah. not land expropriation of our compensation, assets, pro- properties, everything. Yeah. That's the big that's mm. the biggie of our time. Well, so, before, uh, before we do that, um, mm. and, talk, and talking about uh, employment and creating opportunities, we will have to pay the bills quickly through a, a quick <laughs> ad break. So we'll be back just after after the ad break. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm chatting with Herman Pretorius, and it's been a rather fantastic conversation as usual. Herman, we've got a few minutes left. I'd say about two or three minutes. Any closing thoughts about we may touched on EWC as as the next one after, after all the others? Any closing thoughts you have on on that? Yes, uh, people shouldn't make the mistake. I, I, I have one closing thought. I might be one track minded, but sometimes that's necessary. Um, and, and a terrible fear that I have about uh, the state of this country and the state of freedom is that people don't realize the multidimensional nature of the amending of section 25 of the constitution and the expropriation bill, uh, currently before parliament. Uh, both of these pieces of legislation will not just affect Wimfenter with a farm somewhere in the Free State or the Northwest. In these legislative instruments themselves, if you read it and you go beyond the intention, again, you find that phrases like, in cases where property is not limited to land, clearly indicating that this is not just a state wanting to act on historical redress. Mm. Look at prescribed assets, uh, a policy that was defeated last year after vigorous lobbying against it in the public sphere. That would Mm. have been a form of expropriation of our compensation just under a different guise because the long and short of it is that government is broke. There are only five ways for a government or a state to get money. And if we go through them one by one, higher taxes, that's not possible. The taxpayer is already choking. Number two, borrowing from overseas. Well, our junk status and our foxy relationship with international creditors takes that one off the table. Cutting expenditure. We've seen the minister of finance trying to do something like that, but uh, he has been, you know, uh, emasculated to do that. The only two remaining options are seizing assets or printing money. And if you ever hear things about EWC, prescribed assets, NHI, you must realize that that is a way for a bankrupt state to seize assets to funnel into its funding and patronage networks. And if you ever hear something about the nationalization of the Reserve Bank, you must know it's about printing money because the government has run out of taxpayers' money to waste. 